One of the reasons I wanted you to reflect and just really be present to this time and place is that this morning is what we informally call Commitment Sunday here at UUCF, which doesn't mean we're not going to have an altar call or anything like that. This means that our annual operating fund drive is um, underway, and Commitment Sunday is just a time when we encourage you to reflect on what your commitment is to this congregation and, and why especially as to whether you feel led, as I said earlier, to make a financial commitment to help us plan our operating fund for the next fiscal year. Now, we also greatly value your time, your energy, your insight that so many of you contribute to our ongoing ministry here at UCF, and all of these different commitments are vital to keep this congregation healthy, growing, and thriving. And in that spirit, I'd like to invite us to reflect some this morning about what we are all committing or committed to here at UCF as we consider the present and future of our congregation. To do so, I've titled this sermon, What is Our Conveyor Belt? It's a reference to a chapter in philosopher Ken Wilber's book, Integral Spirituality. And I find uh, Wilbur's writing helpful, especially in thinking through how to integrate diverse perspectives in our postmodern world. And I'd commend his work to you if you're interested in exploring further some of what I'll touch on this morning. And one of Wilbur's particular interests is stages of development, both individually and collectively as a group or society. You heard Laura talk earlier about um, Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you have read some of his books. He's helped popularize this notion of 10,000 hours, that if you really want to master something, you, in many cases, need to commit about 10,000 hours to that practice. And individually and collectively, there are these stages we can go through of growth and and maturation as we progress um, through stages of development in many different areas and along many different lines. For example, there are stages of kinesthetic development that we could talk about. Uh, Think about babies learning to first hold their neck up and then to roll over, to crawl, then walk, then run. And some people even, of course, reach Olympic levels of kinesthetic development that most of us uh, will never reach because we're not willing to commit, you know, 50, 60, 70,000, 100,000 hours to learning to walk, roll, tumble really, really well. We just don't want to. There are also stages of cognitive development as babies learn to differentiate their sense of self from their environment, then to talk and read and write, leading all the way up to world-class cognitive development that, again, most of us will never reach, like Nobel Prize level of inventiveness. Most of us just aren't willing to make that much time and commitment. So we could also outline stages of moral development or emotional development or aesthetic development. And this morning, in thinking through our commitment to UUCF, I want to invite us to reflect on some stages of spiritual development and what that looks like in the lives of both individuals and groups. And one framework that Wilbur offers for thinking about stages of development is the metaphor of the conveyor belt. He invites readers to consider what a conveyor belt, how a conveyor belt, so to speak, facilitates progress through the stages of development. For example, one traditional conveyor belt of cognitive development is preschool, all the way through graduate school and to research libraries, to think tanks. 
Traditional conveyor belts for kinesthetic development would be community sports programs all the way through specialized professional training camps. We have art schools for aesthetic development. We have therapy for emotional development. You may can think of some people you'd like to spend some time working on their emotional or their kinesthetic or their aesthetic uh, development. But this morning, I'd like for us to consider the ways that our commitment to UUCF helps catalyze our progress individually and collectively through the stages of spiritual development. And perhaps in doing so, we'll begin to see some of the ways that we can refine our congregation's conveyor belt in the future. I also apologize if all this talk of conveyor belt sounds a bit too, li- too much like the character of Mr. Gradgrind from Dickens' Hard Times, if you remember that novel. My, my goal isn't to be obsessed with uh, perfecting the number of Unitarian Universalist widgets that we're producing here at UUCF, uh, or to make it seem too much like a factory assembly line. Instead, I hope that this metaphor of a conveyor belt might be helpful in inviting us to reflect some on where our time and our money and our commitment to UCF, where that's taking us, where it's taking us now, and the potential for where our commitment could take us in the future, if we choose. And to reflect on that UUCF conveyor belt, I'd like to use the lens of James Fowler's um, classic 1981 book, Stages of Faith. And as with any schema, there are limitations to Fowler's categories. In particular, as you'll see, the names of his stages are really a mouthful. But I've talked to people who had been his graduate students and things like that, and when, whenever anybody suggested that, you know, you might want to simplify some of those, take out a few syllables, he, get, he apparently got really testy and defensive, so people stopped asking him about that. So I hope you'll find the, state, the descriptions of the stages helpful, even if the names of the stages are um, a bit overwhelming at first. More important than keeping track of the stage names is really noticing that general flow over time as you move through the stages. Now, Fowler highlights six potential stages of spiritual development that span the course of a human life, potentially. Again, it depends on how much we choose to go through. We can kind of coast and plateau at a certain point if we choose to. Although technically he has seven stages because he begins with stage zero, which he calls primal or undifferentiated faith. And that lasts from birth through about age two. So hopefully all of us are out out of stage zero. And, well, I know we have a few, <laughs> a few younger ones in the room. There, there, get a pass. And barring any traumatic events, most of us naturally proceed around age three into stage one, which he calls intuitive projective faith. And this early childhood faith is characterized by intuition, by imagination, and by emotion. Next, the growing ability that most children experience to begin thinking more concretely, to begin thinking more rationally, that arises around the same time children go to elementary school. It's related to why we transition children from preschool to elementary school. There's a parallel there that catapults most people into stage two, which is called mythic literal faith. And instead of the freewheeling fantasy that's associated and characteristic of that stage one intuitive projective faith, 
Mythic literal faith in stage two involves a more wooden or concrete interpretation of our religious stories and traditions. For example, a child listening to religious stories might literally think of God as a supersized human who lives in the sky. Now, of course, no adults think like that. But uh, particularly stage two children think that way, very, very literally. The transition to a stage three synthetic conventional faith uh, I told you these names are a little, little unwieldy. That's typically precipitated by adolescence. As a child grows and experiences more of the world, the messiness, the complexity, the diversity of life challenge simplistic, literal childhood understandings of faith. Cognitively, adolescents are also better able than egocentric children. And again, there's no egocentric adults. Uh, adolescents are better than egocentric children to empathetically sense what life is like from the perspective of another person. And that opens up um, the, what faith has to be to make sense. And for better or worse, this increased ability to consider how other people see you and how other people think and feel, that actually has kind of a shadow side. It, it can lead to conformity uh, in an attempt to seem less different or strange. So in stage three, that name synthetic conventional, so think about synthesizing, joining stuff together, suggests that you begin to synthesize the conventions that you see around you. Or as Fowler's cute jingle goes, as I see you seeing me, I construct the me I think you see. So I'll say that one more time. As I see you seeing me, I construct the me I think you see. So in other words, instead of looking inward for our particular gifts and graces and what we know to be true because we've experienced it firsthand for ourselves, you may have noticed this in yourself as a teenager and adolescence you know, our tendency uh, in adolescence is for the most part to build our identity on trends, on fads, on how we think others want us to be, which may be different than how others actually want us to be. And the tragedy, of course, is that most people don't even know what they truly want for themselves, much less what they truly want or need from other people. So to construct your identity on the perception of what others want is to build your house on a shifting sand that is often unable to withstand the storms that life almost always brings. And I mentioned earlier that stage three synthetic conventional faith usually begins in teenage years. But unfortunately, many adults remain in this stage of faith development most of their lives, even at the same time as they may continue to progress emotionally or kinesthetically or um, aesthetically. This dynamic of different uh, levels of development in different areas of your life that you may be here in one area and, and here in another can help explain, for example, why you see professional athletes who may be at the height of their kinesthetic development but who are essentially adolescent in their faith development. Or you can see people with incredible accomplishment in cognitive development but who have an underdeveloped aesthetic sense or emotional sense. Uh, or there may be wise spiritual teachers who are legitimately wise spiritual teachers, but who have underdeveloped moral sides. You may have seen the article in the New York Times a few weeks ago of yet another um, high Buddhist uh, teacher who was, uh, got in trouble for sexually molesting children. It's not just Roman Catholics or others that have this issue. You really can have people who are very wise spiritually, but underdeveloped in other areas. 
And although some individuals and groups do experience an arrested development in stage three, the movement to stage four, individuative reflective faith, does begin for many people in early adulthood. As we enter our 20s and our 30s, many people leave home. They leave home metaphorically or they leave home literally. That is, their primary source of authority moves from outside of the self, their friends and family, to inside the self. They begin to do what Jung called individuate, to become autonomous individuals. They separate from the herd and take individual responsibility for reflecting on who they are and what they want to do in the world and what they want their lives in the world to look like. And this shift is vital but difficult, which is why some never fully enter into that stage four faith. For some, this change begins as one goes to college and leaves home to start an independent life. For others, an unexpected train wreck of sorts forces their hand. A death, an illness, an accident can lead to a situation in which one's childhood theology, often the dominant theology of the friends and families in which you've been raised, is just no longer adequate to your life experience. So whereas stage four early adult faith is characterized by independence, freedom, a sense of limitless untapped potential, stage five faith is the equivalent of a midlife crisis. When many slam full force into their weaknesses, their limits, and their mortality. To enter into a mature stage five, what Fowler calls a conjunctive faith. So think about conjunctions like and. Uh, M. Scott Peck um, calls and the holy conjunction, learning to hold things together. So to enter into a mature stage five conjunctive both and faith, we must learn to embrace paradox, diversity, and irreconcilable differences. At this midlife crisis stage of faith, we have the potential to recognize and live out the paradoxical truth of the unity that lies underneath our surface diversity, a unity that does not insist on uniformity. Finally, we're finally there. According to James Fowler's research, there is a stage six, universalizing faith. Uh, Ken Wilber's integral spirituality goes on to identify stages beyond Fowler's stage six, but for this morning, I want to stick with Fowler's framework for considering our congregation's conveyor belt for faith development. For Fowler, stage six represents the living saints, the wise elders whose lives call us to become and be more than we thought was humanly possible. But they call us to do it because they're out there, they're living it, they're showing us that it is humanly possible. These great saints and sages are universalizing because they reach beyond their tribe, the tribe of their childhood, to embody the boundaryless compassion, insight, and wisdom that is at the core of human potential. Martin Luther King Jr., Mohandas Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Aung San Suu Kyi, Nelson Mandela, Thich Nhat Hanh. And we don't have time to get into this now, but even some of those great figures, right, had their emotional or moral, or so they had great um, spiritual insight often, but there's issues there if you actually read the fullness of their biographies. So having briefly surveyed Fowler's stages of faith, I'd like to reflect on them briefly using Wilbur's metaphor of a conveyor belt. Now, as is typical for most um, Unitarian Universalist congregations, we here at UUCF are quite good at helping individuals move from the power of stage four individuative reflective faith 
If someone comes to us wounded from the pressures to conform in a mythic literal way or a synthetic conventional way, we, we here are well-equipped and well-practiced in serving as a catalyst for individuals maturing from childhood and adolescent stages of faith into what some call adult stages of faith. And our institutional diversity, which ranges from atheism to paganism and Christianity to Buddhism, that also makes us a natural conduit for helping individuals transition into stage five conjunctive faith. Simply being here amongst all the diversity here makes us wrestle with how do we stay together as a community? How do we have a conjunctive faith amidst all our religious pluralism? So that's just this natural part of what it means to be riding on the conveyor belt of this congregation. And at our best here at UUCF, our conjunctive stage of faith results in us not merely being a collection of individuals, but instead something greater than the sum of our individual parts. And we end up experiencing heights collectively that are greater than any of us could experience individually. And that potential is a large part of why I'm increasingly committed personally both to this congregation and to the larger Unitarian Universalist movement. And I'm deeply grateful for all of you in this congregation, especially those who work with our children and youth. There can oftentimes be significant conflict that develops when someone is raised in a stage three synthetic conventional faith that then leaves home and goes somewhere like a liberal arts college. And many people have tragically had the experience in early adulthood of feeling like they had to choose between either their religion or what they're learning in school. And that's, that's a terrible place to put children. And they get the sense that it isn't possible to have both. In contrast, in Unitarian Universalism, and this isn't unique to us, but it is something that we do well, uh, is fortunately a number of other progressive faith traditions do it too. We try to teach our young people that you can have both. You can continue to have a healthy religion and draw from the best of the world's religious traditions, the best of contemporary science, the best of what's out there in the world. That you can do that and have both simultaneously. So there's a power in that kind of conveyor belt that encourages children to learn, to grow, to question their entire lives and encourages adults to do the same. And I'm proud to be committed to a congregation or religious movement that encourages lifespan religious education. But perhaps at this point it's helpful to say that faith development is rarely a simple linear progression where we go through stage four, check, Stage five, check. Stage, you know, life just isn't that simple. It's more like a spiral in which you experience aspects of previous stages. So even as you are ascending the ladder, you're still spiraling back down and catching glimpses of where you may be going. So it's, it's more like a spiral. And the same dynamic is true of us or any group collectively. Our progress and development is less linear than like a spiral. And as I said earlier, our religious pluralism here at UUCF makes us naturally comfortable in stage five conjunctive both and faith. And when I consider that from a perspective of Wilbur's conveyor belt, the question I would invite us to consider is whether we spend more time spiraling from stage five back down into stage four, individuative reflective faith, or whether we spend more time collectively working up 
toward stage six, which you could call uh, something like the beloved community in Martin Luther King Jr.'s nomenclature. So along these lines, um, some of you may recall seeing uh, an article in the winter issue of UU World, not the issue that just came out, but the issue before that. It was called The End of iChurch. And the iChurch in the title has that ironically lowercase i that you see in iPods and iPads and iPhones. It's ironically lowercase, of course, because those um, devices, despite the ways they do legitimately connect us through social media, also can contribute to a profound narcissism of uppercase I individualism, but an unironic uppercase I iPod, iPad, that probably wouldn't sell as well. It wouldn't be as sap. We like our irony, so irony sells. But this article on the end of iChurch is from a longer essay by Fred Muir, who's been the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Annapolis for almost 30 years now. Uh, Fred cares deeply about the present and future of Unitarian Universalism, and to adapt Fred's work into Fowler's terminology, Fred is concerned that our rightful love as Unitarian Universalists of our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, that that's unintentionally kept us spiraling backward into an isolated individualism of stage four faith, instead of committing us to the hard work of stage six, of working toward that, of building the beloved community. And in considering how we might build a better conveyor belt that would help us move more consistently, not just in the direction of iChurch, but of beloved community, Fred highlights a neglected sentence in the Unitarian Universalist bylaws. You can tell he's committed to UUism because he spends time reading the UU bylaws. And we use often list our seven principles and our six sources. You can see them on the um, back page of your order of service. But when we list them, we don't often list the, the introductory part and the conclusion part that frame them in the UU bylaws, which is sort of the canonical version of the principles and sources. And there's usually a final sentence missing. It's actually missing, depending on where you look on the UUA website, there's actually places where this final sentence is missing there. And the final sentence, it's not in your order of service. I think we may need to reintroduce it. But this is it. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant, this covenant of the principles and sources, promising to one another our mutual trust and support. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant, promising to one another our mutual um, trust and support. Now, I think it's important to make a distinction between a creed and a covenant. A creed's about what we believe. A covenant's about what we unite around. There's an important distinction there. And we're skilled as Unitarian Universalists at telling that story of iChurch, of reassuring individuals uh, that our intentions are always to operate by persuasion, not coercion. That, we're deep, that we deeply respect each individual's rights to follow the dictates of her or his conscience. And that story of iChurch is profoundly true and important and needs to be an enduring story that we tell. But Fred Muir invites us to consider the power of telling and emphasizing an additional story, a narrative that leans less toward that first principle that we're so good at of the inherent worth and dignity of every person, that leans more toward our more recent seventh principle, Respect for the interdependent web of all existence. Some people have even suggested we should flip our principles for a while and make our seventh principle our first principle and our first principle our seventh principle to help uh, make up for how much we've overemphasized our first principle. 
And Fred invites us to consider that just as individualism helped us become experts at at iChurch, so too might the practice of covenant help us to become better at building beloved community. So remember that final line that's often missing from our principles and sources. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant, promising to each other our mutual trust and support. The parallel dynamic is that as free individuals, we have the opportunity here at UUCF and in all our UU congregations to enter into a relationship of covenant, promising to one another our mutual trust and support. And in so doing, we retain the liberty to follow our conscience. But that story of individuality doesn't have to be the only story we tell or the only goal that we set. Through committing to this congregation uh, and in committing to improving our surrounding community and world, we have the opportunity to become more than just the sum of our parts. We have the opportunity to see just what might be possible from really committing to mutual trust and support. Now, earlier during the meditation, I invited you to reflect about what gets you up, what gets you here and uh, awake and here to UCF on Sunday mornings instead of relaxing at home. And some people are simply looking for a bit of inspiration, a little taste of sanity, and just a little bit of community on Sundays. And sometimes that's enough, and, and that's okay. But I hope I've given you a glimpse this morning of how much more is also possible in addition to a bit of inspiration, a taste of sanity, and a little bit of community on Sunday morning. And on this Commitment Sunday, after spending um, about eight months here as your minister, I can say without hesitation that I continue to be committed to this congregation. I told the search committee that if selected to be your minister, I had every intention of staying here at least seven or ten years, if not longer, and that continues to be the case. Now, I'm not sure if I'm ready to sign up for the Fred Muir 30-year plan uh, that he's done in Annapolis, but I've talked to Fred, and he, he didn't actually intend that either, and Fred's actually an interesting study of reinventing yourself as a minister, because the danger of staying somewhere too long is that you just plateau. Uh, in in your ministry and and as a congregation. But as I told the Unitarian Universalist Association's Regional Subcommittee on Candidacy when I met with them this past Tuesday in Boston in a trip that was less than 36 hours door-to-door, part of what, you know, I only had a 45-minute meeting, so yeah, Boston's fun, but I had things to do here. Uh, As I told them, part of what interests me most about being a parish minister is that there's no way to know in advance what's possible. I'm profoundly curious about what is possible for us to accomplish here together at UUCF and in Frederick and in the larger um, community and region. And I'm grateful for all that we've accomplished together so far. So I invite you to consider, what is your commitment to UUCF? Time, money, whatever emotional commitment, whatever that word commitment means to you. What is our conveyor belt? How might we improve it for ourselves, for our children, for our young people, for our community? And together, through a covenant of mutual trust and support, how might we contribute to the work of building the beloved community?